let me make one point. I, I feel like the common the common education from our leadership has been uh, a bit piss poor because I think if we understood the disease process, I think everybody would get it. Wow, JP, it has been quite a week. In just uh, seven days, our lives have been completely changed. Yeah, with everything happening with this coronavirus pandemic now, um, certainly everything at home and everything at work in the hospitals just changing day by day. Yeah, and I want to thank you because I know that um, many of our listeners out there are wondering what's going to happen to the podcast, and you found this wonderful software where we don't have to be next to each other and we can record with high quality online. And I have to say, we were really planning a lot of recordings at AANS in Boston, and uh, that meeting's on hold now. So this is such a great venue, and hopefully our listeners will have time to actually listen to longer podcasts. Well, I hope so, too. I think it's important now that we've developed something of a relationship with our listeners across the country, and in some cases around the world, that we can try to keep bringing content to them and uh, keep them updated on what's going on in neurosurgery, um, and in particular, what's going on these days as we live through this COVID crisis. Yeah, so today it's the 24th of March. Uh, I'm looking at the ticker, and the worldwide confirmed cases is over 400,000, worldwide deaths over 18,000. Uh, the U.S. is just getting into this now, and uh, I think if we could provide something for our listeners maybe every couple days or maybe even more often, and hopefully for a short period of time and not a very long pandemic, that would be wonderful, don't you think? Absolutely. Um, the more perspectives we can bring to the audience, the more we can keep them informed and help them contextualize what's going on in their own life uh, relative to what's happening across the country and in other parts of the world. Yeah, so I can tell you about what's happening in Miami, and, and we're going to have some nice guests on that are going to be uh, American and also from around the world. Uh, thanks to, to this wonderful venue you've got us into now, JP. And uh, I can tell you in Miami, everything's changed. I mean, I was I had uh, 27 surgeries canceled uh, voluntarily by us. And uh, I called patients going into this asking them, do you want to do your surgery or not? Half of them said, do my surgery immediately before the hospitals fill. The other half are like, we'll wait this out until after the pandemic. And since then, we've had all kinds of craziness. I mean, people are calling saying I'm worse. I should have had the surgery. Other people are post-op and wondering how they're going to get follow-up. It's really been all over the place. What, what's going on at Rush? Well, it's a, you know it's a similar state of gradually organizing chaos. Things are changing day by day. Uh, we're coming up with the best plans that we can, both as a department and as an institution. From the resident side of things, we're gradually cutting back on the amount of hours and the amount of personnel that are in the hospital each day um, just to try to limit the exposure for each of us so that if, if one of us goes down and has to stay home for some period of time, it doesn't affect the rest of the team. Um, I know from my own standpoint, I keep getting emails about potentially getting pulled to work in the emergency department and help with triage there, depending on um, how high the number of cases that, that keep coming in are projected to go. Um, of course, we, we've here canceled elective cases, um, as it sounds like you have in Miami. So the normal day-to-day -day work in our department has dramatically been cut. But all of this extra drama and extra complication of any patient even suspected of having the virus, you know, still adds to our responsibility, adds to the complexity of our day. 
um, as the week goes on. Yeah, it's been very interesting here. I don't know if you've had any, uh, maybe you would or would not comment on it, but we've had suspected cases in our own department. And so people have had to self-quarantine. It's been very disruptive to the schedule. So we actually have a backup schedule now of attendings and residents. We've asked them to stay away from all people now in case everybody goes down with this infection and has to be, you know, of course, even if they're not sick, to not be exposing you know, our patients to the virus. So it's really changed the whole nature of our business temporarily. And meanwhile, people are still getting sick, right? People are still getting brain tumors, subdural hematomas, spinal fractures, and all that. Yeah, I mean, some of our endovascular team, both the current um, fellows and the attendings that take endovascular call, have done a mini quarantine from each other, where in the past week and a half or two weeks since this really all started, um, in Chicago at least, they haven't been allowed in the, in the same room because if one of them, you know, gets quarantined and affects the other one, there's there's no one to handle an incoming stroke, and it's not like the stroke burden has gone down just because there's a virus about. So, um, it's definitely changing the team dynamics here as well. Yeah, it's exacerbated by how you know there's so few of us, and there's only uh, 21 attendings here and 21 residents. And I got a call recently from one of the internists saying that many of the ICU doctors are. Uh, sort of refusing to go to our COVID intensive wards and asking, well, when the time comes, are you guys ready to do this? Because maybe some of our listeners know this, that neurosurgeons by definition are uh, sort of ICU trained, uh, although that's changed a lot now. But, but you know, we all went through ICU training, so we know how to run ventilators, we know how to intubate, we know how to do lines, the basics. I mean, not, not the really sophisticated stuff. So they've asked, right. if this gets desperate, are you ready, your team ready to go do all that? No, I mean, it It becomes increasingly complicated, you know, talking about pulling you into an ICU setting or pulling me into an emergency department. When you consider, as you said, the small number of personnel within a neurosurgical department compared to, say, a medical department, you know, if, if one of our residents at Rush gets taken out and quarantined for two weeks because of this virus, that is a substantially higher <clears throat> percent reduction in our complement compared to if one medicine resident or one general surgery resident gets quarantined. Um, so I, I, I hope that institutions across the country, as they start allocating or reallocating personnel, will consider the relative impact of moving people around within the hospital. Yeah, exactly. And I, I will tell you that when this um, person asked me about this, of course, I said I would be happy to do what is necessary. Uh, in the interest of our institution, and our patients. So I, I'm, you know, happy to do all that. Just uh, although there's been some some disagreement even in our department about what we should be doing. So that kind of leads us into our first, I will call it our uh, our series, right, of coronavirus episodes. Um, today we are going to be speaking with a gentleman uh, named Greg Mundus. Greg is an orthopedic uh, orthopedic spine surgeon. Greg is fantastic. He is part of the International Spine Study Group, the ISSG. If you follow spine literature, you'll know about the ISSG. And, and the reason we're having Greg on is that about two weeks ago, there was a discussion that started uh, about what is your hospital doing about the PPE shortages in healthcare? I'll, I'll call it rationing for now. Are you canceling elective cases? Are you not? And it got really heated. There was a lot of discussion about you know, what is an emergency case? Should we be doing these surgeries? Uh, what surgery should be done? How should be how should they be handled and all that? It was a very, very interesting online back and forth, very heated too, with a lot of opinions, as you can expect if you're in Seattle versus 
a Houston, it might be viewed very differently, right? So Greg is a fantastic guy, and he's been in the middle of this. In the midst of this, uh, both his parents um, came down with the COVID-19 virus and were uh, hospitalized. And he was actually, I was just watching him on the news last night. So we're going to have Greg introduce himself when he comes on the show in just a little bit. And what, what, what do you think about this coronavirus series we're putting together, John? Well, I think, you know, as I said, I think it's very important for all of us who are kind of siloed now, both in terms of our day-to-day lives and practice, but especially now with, uh, you know, travel restrictions and, you know, uh, suspension of meetings, as we're all siloed at our own institutions and our own departments, um, everyone responding to this virus uh, outbreak in our own ways, I think it's important to hear in detail what's being done in different institutions not just the the general guidelines that we can all get from the news and from uh, professional or government literature, but specifically within neurosurgical institutions, how are you handling this outbreak? You know, the cases that still have to go to the operating room, how are you handling that? Um, and those cases on the border, as, as you discussed before, trying to find that line of what's appropriate to delay or what's appropriate to still take to the operating room, how are you making those definitions and, and how are you counseling patients who are who are kind of on that borderline? Yeah, exactly. There's so many topics to cover. So we look forward to having our listeners email us again at uh, neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions, uh, please don't think you're alone in this. I think a lot of us are going through the same stuff. Absolutely. Don't hesitate to reach out. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake Eccles. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. So as we said today, we're delighted to be joined by Greg Mundus. Uh, Greg is an orthopedic spine surgeon. I've gotten to know Greg over the years through the ISSG. Greg, if you could, for our audience, introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Greg Mundus. I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon practicing out of San Diego, California at the Scripps Clinic. Um, and uh, yeah, I get to practice predominantly, you know, complex reconstruction is pretty much all I do anymore. Great, great. And this is the first uh, episode on the coronavirus series that we've started on the Neurosurgery Podcast. And I wanted you to sort of tell our audience about the discussions that have happened with Shea Bess and the other surgeons on the uh, on the email chain, that is, you know, in terms of, of, of us as spine surgeons and what's happening in the world right now with coronavirus and sort of our role and place in that. Sure. Uh, uh, it's a great question, Mike. And uh, I just wanted to say, first of all, um, I am I'm very honored that you have me on your podcast. Uh, you got a tremendous following um, and honored to be here, especially as an orthopod. So you have to take everything I say with a grain of salt, obviously. So, um, but yeah, you know, we're part of this group called the International Spine Study Group, which uh, has published, you know, extensively on spinal deformity. Um What's been interesting, though, is to see the, the rhetoric and emails happening behind closed doors um, and to see, you know, gosh, we have probably 20 plus health systems represented on these email chains and seeing what different 
health systems are doing in response to this uh, this pandemic. Um, and uh, it, I forget even how it started. I think it may have started actually with an email regarding my parents uh, who are both ill uh, with this virus. And then it kind of turned into saying, you know, what's everyone doing at their own institution? You know, what are the protocols? Because what's weird is that this virus is not hitting hitting everyone at the same time, right? And this is what's making it, I think, a little bit challenging from a social perspective is that, you know, you get an outbreak in Seattle and you get an outbreak in New York and you get an outbreak in California and there's this lag that's happening to the point where you think you're almost safe or protected from this thing affecting your community. Um, but what we're learning is that uh, more and more so is that really nobody's safe um, from being affected by the spread of this disease. And I think in some ways it has to do with the prolonged incubation period of the virus to make you feel sort of falsely secure. So um, it, what, what has happened is actually kind of fun because uh, we're seeing some very aggressive health systems, particularly out of uh, Seattle, some out of New York, um, San Francisco, that went basically on complete lockdown outside of uh, um, uh, emergent type cases and some urgent cases. Um, and that's where the discussion really happened. And uh, Southern California followed suit about a week and a half ago um, where we went on a uh, elective surgery lockdown where we no longer uh, were performing elective surgeries. Um, and then only those with you know progressive neurologic deficit, myelopathy, trauma, tumor, infection, we can talk a little bit more about that, um, uh, where, where we really restricted ourselves there. And so Shay has done a great job in leading this group into a really nice discussion. Um, I would also uh, point you guys to an article that will likely be published in the next uh, publication of neurosurgery by Dr. Uh, Mumanani, uh, looking at the UCSF experience and protocol for their, uh, for their spine division. So that's very interesting, trying to compare and contrast how different institutions are handling this, uh, both globally and across the country here in the States. Um, if you could, Dr. Mundus, for us, why don't we dive in a little more detail to how your practice specifically or, or your institution, your department as a whole, has changed. Some of the you know common questions that we keep coming back to as we examine different institutions are, as you said, restrictions on um, operative cases emergent versus elective cases and, and how you define that difference, um, how you're handling clinic on the outpatient side, and um, how if, if you're handling your personnel and your staffing in the hospital in different ways, uh, trying to limit potential exposure within your own department. If you could just speak to any or all of those points, how, how is your practice changing? Sure. Well, let's go back to let's go back to day zero for me. Um, so that would be uh, almost two weeks ago now when I started hearing about, you know, as UCSF uh, shut down their elective practice, we had a COVID positive patient in on our wards. It was actually one of uh, my partner's patients uh, tested positive two days after an elective uh, uh, removal of implants. Wow. And uh, he had to be quarantined for two weeks in Park City and our fellow had to be quarantined. And I had this sense that uh, things were going to be changing. Now, I have a deformity practice, which makes things a little bit different. You know, my, my schedule for the week was a T10 to pelvis, a uh, front back, five, you know, four level anterior, then a T, C2 to T2 posterior, and then um, uh, later in the week, a second, on a second operative day, I think I had another, uh, T10 or T2 to pelvis or something like that. Now I looked ahead at that and I was like, no way am I 
subjecting my patients, number one, to the potential of this virus. And number two, you know, if this really leads to an outbreak, you know, is it socially responsible for me to be admitting three or four patients that would require a ventilator? Uh, potentially. Yeah. They don't all, but it's, it's, it's potential, right? And so even if it's a 10% chance, if I'm taking a ventilator out of the, out of the mix uh, and someone else can't get it, well, that's, that, that to me, I had a, it was like socially responsible uh, issue with that. Um, it's different than doing a discectomy, for instance, you know, where patients are going to go home the same day. So uh, on that day, Scripps had not um, made any declaration yet. This was on a Thursday. And then on Friday, I canceled everything for the next two weeks, basically. And uh, we're now in week two of that two-week period that I, I canceled everything. Um, and uh, I canceled clinics. I canceled um, uh, all, my, all my, my surgical cases because none of them were, in my opinion, urgent or emergent. Um, so it affected my practice pretty substantially, pretty fast, you know. Um, but I, I did feel very strongly that it's it's the right thing to do socially, um, despite it maybe hurting a lot uh, personally. No, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think not not to be cliche, but that's a that's a noble position to take. Um, in in terms of that decision you made for your cases, has there been any direction either in terms of mandate or suggestion from your department or from the institution, or is this all on a surgeon by surgeon basis for who's proceeding with what cases? So that when I canceled my whole thing, it was surgeon by surgeon uh, on Monday. So that was on Thursday for me on Monday, the, uh, the memo came out that all elective cases are off the books for everybody, for the entire group. So, and, and so Greg, what is elective and what's not elective there in your center like is a myelopathy case considered elective or not uh well as we all know myelopathy is not a yes or no um equation right acute myelopathy someone getting acutely worse going from being able to walk to not walking um or going from you know rapidly going from walking normally to a cane to a walker um to me that would that would probably be a case so we run it by our division head which is uh, bob eastlack so bob would Basically, any case that we deem urgent, we run by him. That way, we have consensus in our division, and then we and we go ahead and operate if it's appropriate. So, uh, if it's someone that's had myelopathy for six months, well, then waiting a month is probably not going to matter. But you do have to talk to your patient and say, "Listen, we're going to hold off for probably two, three, four weeks, maybe until this thing is settled. As long as your symptoms are the same, fine. If they're not, you got to call me and let me know because we may have to escalate the situation." So those are the conversations I've actually had with quite a few patients. Wow, it's tough, right? I mean, they're really, really tough decisions. We're going through a lot of this in Miami. John Paul, you're doing this at Rush too, right? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, we, we've we similarly, as a department now, canceled all elective cases uh, minimum until April 15th. Uh, that's obviously wide open for, for extension, depending on how everything goes. I will say this, guys. Um, the uh, so this the script screen system has worked tirelessly the last week uh, to set up our teleconference and we just launched it. We're on we have three phases of this. We just launched phase two yesterday. Um, these guys are ballers, man. Like they're they're getting after it. They're being aggressive and they're finding ways for us to be able to continue our practices even remotely. And, you know, the new Medicare guidelines have come out that really help us with telemedicine to allow us to continue our business as well on the outpatient setting. So 
for instance, um, um, I'm likely going to return back home uh, this weekend. And on Wednesday, I'm going to have a full clinic. But I bet out of that full clinic, hopefully, um, the only people I have to see in person are those that need like staple removal or, or suture removal. The rest of them, I'm going to really try to do my best to do remotely. Even we may not be able to really test strength per se, but you can definitely via video see things like are, are patients able to do a straight leg raise? Are they able to get on their toes and back on their heels? Are they able to go into a squat and stand back up? Can they lay down on a bed and stand back up? These are things that we can, you know, we're going to have to be a little bit more creative on how we like do a physical exam. Um, but I think, you know, there's going to be um, a, a very strong push towards this probably for the next month or so to keep, just keep, um, keep the crowds to a minimum, right? And that's the key to, to this whole thing. Yeah, we're going to be doing a, a podcast on telehealth soon uh, as part of the coronavirus series because people are really desperate to get information on how to do this better. So we'll get back to that. But let's move forward now in, in your journey. So in the midst of all these back and forth email chains, uh, we we were we received information and I'm very, very sad uh, that your parents had to be hospitalized. Can you tell us a little bit about the personal side of this experience? Yeah, man. Uh, I'll, I'll try to hold it together. It's been, uh, it's been a, it's been a pretty rough journey. Um, I got wind, uh, a week ago Thursday that my dad wasn't feeling so good. And, uh, just to give you a little reference, my dad runs an organization that has thousands of, um, people that he works with uh, or works that work for, that work under him, I would say. Um, so he's a busy guy. He hosts a lot of international folks. And earlier in that week, uh, the week of, uh, I think it was like, it may have been like March 9th or so he hosted some French delegates and they had, you know, a get together, had dinner, um, we're hanging out a bunch. Um, they went back home, um, uh, like on Tuesday or Wednesday on Thursday, my dad started feeling ill. Um, on Friday started spiking temperatures, uh, got tested with like the different influenza tests because they didn't want to test them for COVID at that point. Saturday, uh, got the tests back that were negative Sunday, starting feeling pretty lethargic. And then Monday morning, my mom said he just wasn't normal and he's a really high functioning guy. Um, and, uh, he's 69, um, got really lethargic, staring out in space, couldn't really make decisions, got him tested by the time he got home. 911 was called and uh, they they took him via EMS to the hospital. Uh, this is a week ago from yesterday. Um, got to the hospital probably around noon or one. They evaluated him. They took him to a temporary ward where they were putting all these uh, suspected patients on. And within an hour, they had him transferred to the ICU. And by 4 p.m., he was emergently intubated and has been on a ventilator ever since. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's my dad's a healthy guy. He was, he was on like, cholesterol medicine you know that's it mainly because he likes captain crunch or frosted flakes or something like that you know it's not he's not a guy that's uh you know this is a guy that passes his test with flying colors every time he goes to see his primary care doc and you know the unfortunate thing is that uh, despite our recognition of his symptoms we actually couldn't even get him into the hospital because that he kept being told to stay home and it's 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 the wrong rhetoric in our in our uh, on, on our, our ground our ground efforts. And so I'd say from the primary care standpoint, you know, it's it's a huge challenge because otherwise you get, you know, these floods of people into the ER. And if you look around the country, what's actually happened is that they're setting up mobile hospitals where they're able to screen, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of patients that are coming through and they have them hang out until their symptoms resolve. But, you know, small town America, I'm in, I'm in Springfield, Missouri, and, uh, 
uh, you know, they don't have that, those abilities here, not yet at least. Um, and, uh, it's tough because they're telling everybody to stay home. Um, and these patients are getting my, when my dad went to the uh, ER, his, sorry, in the, in the ambulance, his oxygen saturation was in the mid seventies. So he'd been existing with a hypoxic state for a long time. So, and what did they treat him with, Greg? What you, there were some novel treatments used in his case, right? Yeah. So you know, I hopped right on right on right on top of it right on Monday. Um, I hopped on a plane and and uh, flew out to Missouri as soon as I heard. Um, and we started. Um, uh, I, obviously, I you know have great friends in in the pulmonary critical care world and they and I in the ID world and they said you know the only thing that's really showing any promise is hydroxychloroquine. And then potentially the addition of azithromycin with it, because the French published a nice little um, small study, 22 patients, um, uh, but showing that the combination of those twos are, are actually fairly effective. So the problem is, from a hospital standpoint, the the actual indication is COVID positive. So they didn't want to start it until he was actually tested positive. And unfortunately, the test takes about three days. So there was a three-day delay even in his illness before he was able to get the medicine. So... He got the medicine and probably about 24 hours, he looked a ton better. Um, but, you know, he got better pretty quick. And I, I say, when I say better, mind you, he's in fulminant ARDS and renal failure on dialysis. So better is a really a relative term. But uh, he got better, but he's kind of stayed the same since like Friday or Saturday. So even though he's doing a few things here and there, I think if you zoomed out, I, you know, I, as a physician, I'd have to say, you know, he's probably about the same, which sucks because, uh, I really need him to come around, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and your mother, how's she doing? So, yeah. So the second part of the story then is on Wednesday, she started spiking fevers last week. So went to the ER. The ER doctor, fortunately, was very kind and listening to me. He actually prescribed her uh, hydroxychloroquine. I tried to get her azithromycin as well, but she has a really bad allergy to the, the Z-Pak. So um, we couldn't put her on that. So I put her on Levaquin instead. Um, and, uh, she's been taking it faithfully and, um, happy to say today was the first time in four days that her, her temperature was under 90, 99. So it was 98, seven, about an hour ago. So, um, it looks like for her, it's actually doing the trick. She's on two different antibiotics. She's on doxycycline, levoquin, uh, in addition to the hydroxychloroquine, Tylenol around the clock. And I have her on airborne, which is like a a generic immunosuppressive type of thing, but it has zinc in it and, and vitamin C, both of which have been shown to be uh, active against um, against viral proliferation. So um, they te- seem to be toxic to toxic to viruses in general. Wow, uh, you know, Doctor Mundus. I mean, my my heart goes out to you. My parents are about the same age, and fortunately, uh, they started working from home a few years ago, so they've been relatively safe and careful through all this. I can't imagine what you're going through and your family's going through. Um, you know, you were talking before about social responsibility and, you know, taking, taking that perspective on this, both as a physician and as a a man who's going through this in his own family, what would you talk to people about? What would you want to tell people who are going through a similar experience in their own home, in their own family? And then on the other side of things, what, what do you want physicians to take away as someone who has a fairly unique perspective on all of this from the, you know, within the professional community. Yeah. So um, let me make one point. I I feel like the common, the common education from our leadership has been uh, a bit piss poor um, because I think if we understood the disease process, I think everybody would get it. 
Um, there was a great article published yesterday in the New York Times sort of summarizing what all these different countries are learning. And I would, I would draw your attention to that, um, and I can maybe give it to you guys. You can reference it somehow. Um, but the bottom line is it, it, it talked about the disease and how it spreads. And the reason Italy probably got affected so much is because families cluster so much there, right? So that everyone in these families, especially those that have the elderly living with the middle of the generation, those living with the young, they were clustering and probably passing it all along. So uh, in our society, it's more small group hangouts, uh, people just getting together in smaller groups, but still hanging out and doing their thing. And uh, the reality is, if you realize that this bug spreads fairly easily, so it's fairly infectious in the sense that it will get transmitted pretty easily. The problem is that the young guys aren't affected that bad. They get a little cold. They get the sniffles. They might lose the sense of smell or taste. That's been a new new thing that's happened in the young that we're seeing. If you have a loss of sense of taste or smell, um, probably means you're at a point where you're infectious. Um, the issue is that they're still getting together because they don't feel so bad. You just kind of feel like you got a little cold, right? And so they're passing it on, but then they hang out with their grandparents at home. And you can see how the cycle just keeps going. And it will keep going and going until we finally just stop. You know, we have to be still for a period of time because the best way to treat this disease is like any other disease, and that's by prevention. And the way you prevent this is just to stay home. Do not go, don't go out and don't go to the stores and do all these other things, right? You go to the grocery store and you're like, you know what? I want, I want to take this peanut butter and you pick it up. And as you're taking it, you're like, you know what? I want the organic kind instead. And you put the peanut butter bottle back, right? And who knows that you're rubbing your nose or whatever, and you're a carrier. Then the little old lady comes by and grabs your peanut butter, right? That's, this is how this thing is spreading. It's simple. It's on the grocery carts. It's on the, it's just so infectious that way that people just aren't paying attention to these little details. So I think the more you isolate yourself or quarantine yourself, whatever you want to call it, the better off we are. And if we all did it for two weeks, this thing just dies. It just dies. But as soon as you break the cycle, it's, it keeps living. That's such an important message. And you in San Diego are ahead of us here in Miami. And I know a lot of people have been upset about the pictures of people on spring break and all that. And, and you know, I think that's an important message. A lot of our listeners are young. And, um, you know, if we could just stop the cycle for a little bit and catch up, that would be uh, great for us. So uh, Godspeed to your parents. I'm sorry for what you're going through, but I hope they both come through this uh, just fine and uh, keep us posted on the progress that's happening. Let me say one last thing for physicians, especially young guys that are anxious about doing cases. Here's the deal. Uh, the number of people that need surgery is not going to change. So uh, when this is all done, guess what? Instead of being done at five or four in the afternoon, be done at seven or eight you know, add the, add the extra case on you're, we're not going to see a tremendous bump in volume. If we all do our part, we're going to see a massive bump in volume. If we don't do our part and we're not allowed to operate for eight weeks or 12 weeks, that's going to be really hard. So if we all just do our part and we limit the amount of time we have to be away from work, then we're going to be able to catch up on the economics that we're all worried about in our own practices, et cetera. And so like from an economic standpoint, it's even responsible in that way. It's just, chill out for a little bit. Guess what? It'll all bounce back. And the same patients still need the same treatment. It's not going to change. The volume doesn't change. Mm. Great. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much. And please keep us updated. Sounds great, guys. Hey, really appreciate you taking interest in this whole thing. It's been a crazy journey. And uh, 
Everyone stay safe. Keep your hands clean. Take care of your families. We never, ever have had a chance in our entire lives to invest in our children and in our wives and in our parents the way we have over this time period. Don't take that for granted. It's a, it's a freebie. We should all use it to the best of our advantage. Thank you.